John chapter 21, please. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, we always encourage you to bring your Bible to church, but if you don't have one with you today, there's one under the the seat in front of you that uh, is the New King James Version, the same that I'm reading out of this morning. Verse 1 of John chapter 21, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Father, give wisdom now as we open your word, and I pray in these few minutes that remain, you'd help us to have calm and and, uh, concentrating hearts. Speak to us from your word. Let there be no distraction. Help us, Father, to to just receive what we need from the word. Fill me with your spirit. Help me today, Lord, to say the things I should, to not say anything I ought not, uh, to preach the word of God boldly and completely and rightly. And Lord, we'll thank you for these things. This is your time, and we ask you to work in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the week since Easter Sunday, we have been talking through the sayings that took place, the sayings of Christ, after the resurrection. Uh, we talked about the sayings of Christ from the cross leading up to Easter, and then we've been talking about the sayings of Christ after. 
I want to continue that here this morning, but before we get into the sayings, let's look just for a few moments at what took place here. This is such an interesting story. Let's, let's describe the scene just a little bit here today. The disciples are deciding to go fishing along the Sea of Tiberias. And of course, the Sea of Tiberias is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's also referred to as the Sea of Chinnereth in the Old Testament. In just a few weeks now, some of us are going to step foot on a boat, and we're going to sail out on that water. And uh, we may be just a very, very, very short distance from where this event took place, uh, from wherever the fishing took place, and certainly from wherever Jesus on the shore cooked them breakfast. Now, not all the disciples took part in this little fishing trip. Seven of them did. In verse C, we see that the seven included Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John. And two others that the Holy Spirit didn't choose the name for us. Two others who, of the disciples who were fishermen. Peter had initiated the fishing trip, but then the others, when they heard him say, I'm going fishing, they all jumped right in. We, we don't know why they went fishing. Maybe they just liked fishing. They were fishermen. Maybe it was just a recreational fishing trip. Could be that Peter was a little low on funds. This was how he made his, made his living. So it's possible that he needed some money, and so he went fishing for that purpose. Some people think that it's possible that it was also him thinking about going back to his old profession. Uh, Some people read this not as I'm going fishing, but as I'm going back to fishing, and the others going with him. So they went fishing, and they fished all night, and they caught absolutely nothing. And when morning came, dawn arises, and they look, and they see somebody standing on the shore. In verse number 4, and they didn't quite recognize that it was Jesus, but it was Jesus himself. He inquired as to their success, and these great fishermen had to admit complete and total failure. And then he suggested something which, personally, I think is, is ridiculous. He suggested that they try the other side of the boat. Now, I've been fishing before, and I don't see that I've ever noticed any success on one side of the boat versus the other. I don't see how that works. But he did that. And these fishermen, who knew all about fishing, agreed. And they threw the thing on the other side of the boat. And now they caught a miraculous quantity of fish. John was the first to recognize that the man on the seashore was Jesus, the Lord. He mentioned it to Peter who in his normally impetuous way flung himself into the water and swam to the shore to get to Jesus. And when they got to the shore, they found Jesus there with a charcoal fire and breakfast cooking on the fire. And they enjoyed a meal with the master. Now, you know, we have some wonderful prayer breakfasts at this place. Trudy, Leona, uh, Mary, others who cook and help with the, with the prayer breakfast, they're, they're just absolutely wonderful. And it's hard for me to imagine a breakfast that could top one of our prayer breakfasts. But it is possible that this breakfast along the seashore with Jesus himself doing the cooking, it just might be there. It might do it. After breakfast, Jesus had a private conversation with Peter. The others were listening in, but the conversation was clearly between the Lord and between Peter himself three times. Jesus inquired into Peter's devotion to him. Three times, Jesus commanded Peter to shepherd his sheep. And Jesus was saying, I think here, Peter, regardless of the fact that you have denied me three times, you have a job to do, and I want you to shepherd my sheep, and I want you still to fulfill your ministry. So on the one hand, all of the conversation that we see here between these is, is as this this scene was taking place, would have been deeply personal, wouldn't they? I mean, the conversation between the the Lord and the seven, that that seems to have a very specific 
meaning. I mean, they were fishing. They were trying to catch it. It would seem to apply only to them. And certainly the conversation with Peter would seem to be extremely personal. It applied to his sin, his particular failings, and the Lord restoring him from that. But I believe also that we can apply them to our lives. And so let's do that today. Let's take those words that Jesus spoke to the seven disciples and to Peter along the sea. And let's see if we can't learn some lessons that apply to us. And I want to suggest three things that I think I see here. And the first is this. The first is in verse number five. Jesus wants our trust. He wants our trust. Verse number five, Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Children, have you any food? Meat, the King James might say. Interestingly, Jesus asked a question here, which he must have known the answer to. Does any of us think that Jesus didn't know whether or not they'd caught any fish? Surely he knew. Did he just want to hear them say it? Did he just want to rub their noses in the fact that they were completely inept fishermen? Why did he ask the question, children, Have you any food? Well, I think we might get a little understanding when we look at how another English translation translates. The New American Standard Bible translates that phrase as this. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And that would seem to be the most accurate to the Greek translation. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And of course they had to say no. And after they had admitted that they had none, he tells them what to do. And now they, they catch a huge quantity of fish. You know what I think this was? I think it was a reminder that without Jesus' help, there is no success. That without Jesus' help, there is no way of succeeding at the mission he has given us to fulfill. I think it was a reminder of a truth he had taught them earlier in John chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. Boy, we ought to burn that on our soul in letters of fire, shouldn't we? Without me, you can do nothing. I think it was a reminder that doing things their way brought no success, but doing things his way, well, that brought abundant success. They'd seen this miracle before. In Luke chapter 5, I believe it was, they had seen uh, Jesus do this exact same thing. And the result then was that Jesus told them for the first time about their mission. He said, from henceforth, you will be fishers of men, you will catch men. And then they had brought their boats to land and forsook all and followed him. So now maybe he's reminding them of that earlier promise and telling them that, yes, you will catch men, but the only way you're going to do it is my way, is with my help. And so Jesus is saying here he wants our trust. He is our supply. He is our only hope of success. He is our sufficiency in everything. Paul knew this because Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. me. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, Jesus said, and you will find some. He told them where to cast the net, and they obeyed, and they caught 153 fish. Warren Wiersbe said the difference between success and failure was the width of the ship. We are never very far from success when we permit Jesus to give the orders, and we're usually closer to success than we realize. 
Think about the application to us. I think some of us this morning need to hear the words of the Savior from the shore. You don't have any fish, do you? We need to think about it. And we need to recognize, maybe it's because we're doing things our way and not his. Maybe we're not trusting him as we ought to. Maybe we're fishing on our own side of the boat, not the side he wants us to be fishing from. Well, the second thought here, verse number 9. Jesus wants our trust. We've seen that. Verse number 9, I'd suggest Jesus wants our service. If we want to be real specific, I'd say Jesus wants our fish. Our fish. Verse number 9. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Now think about this scene for a minute. It's interesting here. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I really thought this through. But it's interesting. There was a double supply of fish here. There was their fish. And there was his fish. First, there were the 153 fish in the large unbroken net, the miraculously unbroken net that they, that they had caught. 153 fish. Don't you find that an interesting number? Why in the world did the Holy Spirit decide that we needed to know there was 153 fish in that net? Any significance to it? I would imagine if he wanted to pick a number, he could have picked some more interesting ones. How about a nice round number like 100? That would have been a memorable number. Or, or how about a number like 8? That would have made sense to me because there was seven apostles there or disciples there and there was Jesus. Eight, one apiece. Or for someone like me, maybe it would be better if there was 16 because I wanted two fish. And then there would have been two apiece. Why 153? What in the world is the significance of that number? You know, commentators have been asking that question since John's ink was not yet dry on this gospel. They've been trying to figure out what that 153 is. And they have come up with some astonishing and amazing and ridiculous things. One person named Cyril stated that the 100 stood for the Gentiles and 50 stood for the Jews and 3 stood for the Trinity. He does not support this at all. He just states it. I don't know what he's talking about. Augustine. Augustine was one of the greats of Christian history. Great theologian, and we owe so much to Augustine that, my goodness, when you read this, you realize that Augustine is a perfect example that the best of men are men at best, because this is ridiculous. Listen to what Augustine said. He said that this number refers to the Ten Commandments and the seven gifts of the Spirit, which equals the number 70. If you add up each number, 1, 2, 3, 4 through 17, you get 153. And Augustine said this was the total number who came to Christ through the law and grace. What? I don't even understand the math, let alone... What the theology of it. Jerome said there are 153 different kinds of fish. Therefore, this is symbolic of all nations coming to Christ. At least I can understand where he's going with that one, even though we know there's more than 153 different kinds of fish. You know, all that kind of allegorizing is nonsense. It doesn't, it's not necessary. It was just a number that John happened to remember. You know, fishermen count their catch. And I think that's all it was. I don't think there was any significance to the number whatsoever other than John's mind remembered it and he recorded it because it was big. He was trying to say it was a big catch. They caught a lot of fish. I think that's the only significance to it. They did things Jesus' way. He supplied in a big way. And that net had 153 fish in it. But interestingly, those weren't the only fish. They got to shore and Jesus already had fish cooking on the fire. And now he told them to bring some of the fish which you have just caught and add them to the fish that he already had. And they, together, 
both catches of fish together made their breakfast. Let me make a couple of observations from this uh, here, which I think are interesting. From the breakfast itself, let's not even talk about the words of Jesus yet. From the breakfast itself, I think we see something very, very important here. We see evidence that Jesus' resurrection was real. He said in verse number 12, come and eat. Jesus was eating breakfast, fish, and no doubt sausage and gravy by uh, Trudy and, 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 and eggs and all that kind of stuff. At least fish. He was eating. And it reminds us that he rose bodily and physically from the dead. And that is such an important thing. You know, there was an early error, and it's still believed by many today, that Jesus did not physically rise. That it was something mystical. It was something spiritual that took place. But the truth of Scripture is that he, he bodily and physically rose from the dead. It's a key component of the gospel. And hence we see all throughout these post-resurrection appearances, references to him eating and drinking. In Luke chapter 24, he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. It's to remind us that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. It's the third component to the gospel. Paul said, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something that we need to confess in order to be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9. So there's a lesson from the breakfast. That's the fact that he was eating. Reminds us of this important theological truth. But there's also a lesson from the fish that were already there. The fish that were already cooking on a fire when they walked up there. There's a there's something there for us, I think. I think, think we see from them that Jesus works alongside us to reach the world. You know, we witness, and we, we bring some, and then we find them added to the ones that Jesus has brought himself. You know what I think? I think that's why it's never wrong for us to knock on doors, for us to support missionaries. For us to hand out gospel tracts. Even if the results sometimes may seem some, some scanty sometimes. Because the result is really going to be seen when Jesus takes our fish, adds them to his fish, and we sit down and eat breakfast from both of them. Some people mock the idea of going door to door. Mock the idea of inviting people out to church. Door to door evangelism doesn't work. They say the results are too few and statistically it's not successful. Some people criticize mailing campaigns and we do that. Every once in a while here, advertising is a means of outreach, and we do that sometimes here. Too expensive, too few results, some would say. Some think us extravagant with God's money for sending it to people like our sister Jean Fotes in Gambia, or other missionaries such as the many we support. And some no doubt think we're absolutely nuts and off our rocker to be spending all this money and time and effort to build an addition on this 3,000-year-old building that we're building an addition on. But you know what it is? It's the right side of the boat. It's the right side of the boat. Jesus sent his disciples door to door, so how can we go wrong by doing it the same way? 
Jesus told us to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. How can we go wrong? By doing what he told us to do. Jesus told us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, our neighborhood, our Randolph, our community. Jesus told us to go into all the world to the end of the earth with the gospel. How can we be wrong? It's the right side of the boat. And one day we're going to get to shore. And we're going to find out that God mysteriously and marvelously used all of those things. And then added to our little feeble efforts the fish that Jesus had brought. And we're going to see the miraculous catch that is the kingdom. You know, every time we witness it brings results. Every time. Whether directly or indirectly. Every time we send out invitations. Sometimes people come because they receive the invitation. Sometimes they come for some other reason, but they come. We knock on doors trying to reach Randolph one door at a time. People come. Sometimes they come because we knock on the door. Sometimes they come for a completely different reason. But they come. We support missions overseas with our money and prayers, and money pours into our offering plates. We have such good offerings here, praise God. And I think part of it is because God blesses those efforts. We may not always see the results of these things in our lifetime. We may not always see the results of these things immediately right here, but there will be a day we will get to shore bringing our fish, and we'll see Jesus multiply them there. I think there's also a lesson to be learned from the fish he asked them to add to the fire. 153, large fish that were in their unbroken net. I think there's a lesson there. And I think that's the simplest truth of all. Jesus wants our fish. He wants us to fish. This, Friendship Bible Church, is a soul-winning church. We believe in preaching the gospel without apology. We believe that personal soul-winning is the responsibility of every believer. When I went to Bible college, we had to go to chapel every single day. And in chapel we had to recite a creed and there was a line in that creed that we recited every day of the world. And it said, I believe that God has given to the church the responsibility to evangelize the world through the preaching of the gospel and personal soul winning. Over and over we said it. It's true. Jesus wants our fish. He said, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Some people love to talk about elections. Hyper-Calvinists like to say that God will bring them in. We just need to sit back and let him do it. And, of course, election is in the Bible. And predestination, they're wonderful truths of Scripture. But you know the same God who said that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in 1 Peter chapter 1, and that whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in Romans chapter 8, also said go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. He also said, whosoever will may come. He also says that those who believe will be saved and those who do not believe will be lost. He also says, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they ever be saved if someone doesn't go to them and tell them the good news? This morning in Brother uh, Jim's Sunday school class, he was reading in Second Timothy. And I noted this verse, which I should have included in my sermon this morning. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 10. Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you believe in election, Pastor? Of course I do. It's in the Bible. How do you not believe something that's in the Bible? Do you believe in soul weight? Absolutely. It's in the Bible. How do you not believe it? You see, election is God's part. We'll leave that to him. Soul winning is my part, your part, our part. And Jesus wants us to do our part. I love the way my good friend John Cornett used to talk about these things. He used to say, isn't it funny? Downright hilarious. How all the churches that practice soul winning seem to have more of the elect. 
And I always thought that was true. We're supposed to be out compelling them to come in. You know, some hyper-Calvinists would have us just sit on the shore while Jesus does the fishing for us. But that doesn't fit here, does it? I don't notice that Jesus said here uh, to the man in the boat, drop your nets, I've got this handle. I don't, I don't see that. He said, no, cast your net on the other side and then bring some of the fish you have just caught. Jesus wants our trust. Jesus wants our service. Number three, with the sum done, Jesus wants our devotion. Our devotion. We've been looking at the words he spoke to the seven, but let's, the last couple of minutes, let's notice the words he spoke just with Peter. What a man is Peter. Don't you look forward to when we get to heaven and meeting this guy? Perhaps the most human human being in the Bible. I, I can see so much of myself in Peter. Not the good things, the bad. Uh, he's so flawed. And I see myself in him so. One man described the failed and flawed Peter like this. He said, the man who called himself a witness of Christ's sufferings was not there when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Along with most of the other disciples, he was hiding in fear. The man who calls us to be eager to serve remained seated while Jesus washed the disciples' feet, including his. The man who tells us that we should be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray fell asleep while Jesus was in such intense prayer that his sweat was like drops of blood. The man who so boldly tells us to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men took a sword and lopped off the ear of an official from the chief priests and Pharisees. He was a human being, there's no doubt about it. But of course the thing that we think about and the thing that's most applicable here today is that even more than those failings in his life, he had famously and publicly denied his Lord. There is a church just outside Jerusalem, in the outskirts of Jerusalem. I believe it is called the Church of St. Peter of Galicantu. I'm not sure of that last word, I think that's what it is, Galicantu. It is a church that is reared over the site that is believed to have been Caiaphas' home, where Jesus' trial took place and where Peter sat in the courtyard and denied his Lord. And there's a statue there. Uh, I think I've shown the pictures of that statue before, but every time I see it, I'm reminded of the sorrow that must have overwhelmed Peter as he thought about these things. It shows Peter sitting there. It shows a little girl. She was just a little girl standing next to him. And the caption underneath of it is, as he's looking at her, says, I do not know him. You know, as we hear Jesus' words to Peter here, there are so many obvious parallels to that denial. I think Jesus was purposely pushing Peter's mind back there. And I think each detail of the conversation must have felt like a blow. Just smacking him over the head. Notice verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. How Peter must have winced when Jesus called him Simon, son of Jonah. You know, this is Peter. That at another time, Jesus has said to him, thou art Peter. And on this rock the rock of your confession, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Thou art Peter, the rock. Not now. Simon. Son of Jonah. How he must have wished for a rock to crawl under as he heard Jesus' question in verse number 15, Do you love me more than these? And I think he may have gestured to the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? 
Other disciples, you know, Peter, there was a time when you swore you did. There was a time when you swore up and down that everybody else would leave, but you would be right there. Do you really love me more than these? Three times Jesus asked, do you love me? Three times Jesus commanded, feed my sheep. Every time it must have been like a blow to Peter. And we talked about this a lot in our sermon series on John, so I won't go into it any further. You can get that if you want to. But let me just mention three different, very quick applications, and then we'll be done. Notice he said, do you love me? Do you love me? You know what that says to me? That says, what other motivation do we need than love for Jesus? That's the only reason that we serve him. If we love him, we will serve him. Jesus said in John chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Oh, the beauty of the Christian life is that we don't serve Jesus because we have to. We don't do it out of some sense of duty. We don't do it in order to buy our way to heaven or earn our way there, because we know that's simply not possible to do. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. And therefore we love him. We love him because he first loved us. And that love is our ultimate motivation for serving Jesus. We don't need any other motivation. I wonder, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? That was the question he asked Peter. I think it's a question he asks all of us. And does that love motivate you to greater levels of service? Do you love him? The second thing I see here is the phrase, you know. And of course, this was not Jesus. This comes actually from Peter. Peter's answer. Peter's answer of, you know that I love you. Quite an interesting change from his usual braggadocious claim of superior piety and devotion, isn't it? (laughs) No longer, yeah, I know. No longer, yeah, I'll follow you anywhere. I don't even know my own heart. Lord, I thought I knew you. I thought I loved you. But uh, now I'm not sure, but you know. Peter was not speaking so impulsively or brashly now. He had learned not to boast, and I, that alone is a lesson. We could take a lesson from that. But there's another vitally important truth here, and that's just simply, that that's a theological truth. Jesus knows. He does know. He knows what we think, and he knows what we feel about him. John chapter 2, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. We can say one thing and do another, but Jesus knows. Captain Penny's famous words. You can fool all people some of the time and some people all the time. You can't fool mom. You you guys date yourselves, anybody who knows who Captain Penny was. But, you know, it applies, doesn't it? It applies to the Savior, not to mom. He knows. Parents who teach their children about Santa Claus at Christmas instead of Jesus, they might uh, tend to sing him. Sing to them that uh, he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake and he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Applied to Santa Claus, that's nonsense and it's myth and it's untrue. But applied to the Savior, it's absolute truth. He knows. He knows. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Peter had it right when he said, Lord, you know. You know all things. He couldn't deny the Savior and get away with it for Jesus knew. He couldn't inflate or fake his level of devotion because (laughs) Jesus knew. Peter had learned that Jesus could see right into his heart and he knew everything about him. One last thing. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Verse number 18, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you were old, 
You will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. Three times Jesus heard Peter say, You know that I do. Three times Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep. But then after all that was over, Jesus told Peter about his future ministry. Here's what you can expect now. He said, It will be long and it will end in your martyrdom. It will be long and it will end in martyrdom. Follow me, he said to Peter, even though your ministry will last into old age. Follow me through it all. We could make all kinds of application about patience and taking the long view, couldn't we? We could talk about the fact we ought not quit, that we ought to be long-suffering, that we ought to hold fast unto the end. Follow me, no matter how long. He said, follow me, even though that following is going to result in your eventual death. And not just any death, the death of a martyr. That phrase, you're going to stretch out your hands, they knew what that meant. That meant crucifixion. You're going to die the way I died, Jesus said. You're going to be crucified. And tradition tells us that's exactly what happened. In the ecclesiastical history by Eusebius, he said, Peter was believed to have preached in Pontius, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia unto the Jews of the Diaspora. And having gone to Rome, he was crucified head down at his own request. Follow me, he said to Peter, regardless of the cost. And then good old Peter, he looked over at John and he said, wait a minute, what about John? What about this guy? Jesus said, you follow me. Regardless of what I choose for other believers, it's not about them. It's about you and me. You follow me. You know, Peter often had a problem with letting his gaze get distracted. Here he let his gaze get distracted by another Christian. In Luke chapter 5, that earlier miracle of a great catch he let his gaze get distracted by his own self. It says when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. His own sin, his own deficiencies he saw. And then there was another time when he walked on water. I love the story of when he walked on water. He did. He walked on water. Jesus wasn't the only one in the Bible who did. Peter did. He walked on water until he saw the wind and until he saw the waves. And he got his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. Oh, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, off ourselves, off our circumstances, off anything, off other believers. Jesus said, regardless of any of those things, follow me, no matter what. He said, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. So, this passage describes for us words to the wandering the wandering seven disciples the wandering Peter they were personal words first to those seven and then directly to Peter but they are words that apply to us I think they're words that apply to me and so I wonder which word Jesus is directing at you today he wants your trust does he have it some this morning might need to start casting your net on the right side of the boat. He wants your trust. He wants your fish. He wants your service. Your effort. Does he have it? Some this morning simply need to start fishing. It's as simple as that. Because you haven't been. And some need to bring some of the fish you have caught. And finally, he wants your devotion. Does he have that? 
Some this morning need to consider the words of Jesus to Peter. Do you love me? Will you follow me? No matter the path. No matter the cost. No matter the end. No matter what you see in others. Will you follow me?